what is it that you can really do to be more aware of your own thinking and behaviours and what can you really do with that information and understanding when you have it. Do you need to order your mind? Which means you need to give it time to think about what you want in there. Going back to this whole self-awareness conversation, we don't necessarily have the tools to recognise what's going on. And it's okay sometimes for your beliefs and your actions to be slightly contradictory of each other because I think that's part of human growth. Hi, welcome to the Pylon Ultrapod. We kicked on a new series of the podcast last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago by the time this is published. As we said, we have a fairly clear intention for the series and that's to have some exploratory conversations about self-awareness, bias, the way we think, mindset, creativity and collaboration in the hope that it'll help us to look at how we train, race and live our lives. We had a general discussion in episode one and that's been very worthwhile already, pointing us to some particular areas for further investigation and discussion. This week will be a similar format. I have some questions I'd like to get to and as always I'm happy to get alternative views from James and talk some of that through. We're also always happy to get views and opinions from you, our listeners. We don't always get things right. We try not to script our podcasts and have real conversations that we share here with you. We don't know what way the conversations might go, not because we're lazy or we feel like we don't need to put the work in, because we do put the work in, but that we want this to be a discussion that you might have with your own friends or family, and we want to encourage debate and alternative ways of thinking. We are not experts in some of these fields, but we have views, we have a willingness to learn, and in most cases, some tools to make improvements where we need to, as we do in our running and with the athletes we coach. So let's get going with the next episode of the Pylon Ultra pod. Hi James, thanks for committing some time this week for some further conversations. I know it's a holiday week for you and I'm hoping that you've maybe found a bit of space to do some stuff that you can't normally do during the week. Yeah, I know it's great to be here, Paul. And you know, I've had a, a really nice week been playing a bit of music, reading some books and chilling with the kids. Um and we've made an effort to see some of the family this week now that we can get outside and see people. So it's been a really nice week. Obviously topped off by talking to yourself though, right? Of course, of course. You haven't exactly knocked it off with the weather though, have you? It was nice last week and then this week's been a wee bit on the chilly side. Eh? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Saturday we sat out, um, I think it was Saturday, yeah, Saturday and it was like sunburn, you know, because it was 12 degrees for listeners abroad in, in Scotland, that is veritably summer. Um, and then the next yeah. day there was snow. So it's like, yep, welcome to Scotland. So take what you get, mate. You know, you just got to roll it up here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm guessing there's probably many people with who were previously doing office-based jobs and quite a lot of people probably racked up a fair few holidays to be taken and maybe with working from home and not being able to actually go on like a formal holiday means that a lot of people don't take them um, but I'm sure it's still really important for people to get some time away from the pressures of work and recharge again. Mate, mate you know that, that that's so true in, in my work um, and I actually made that mistake last year in the summer I split my two-week holiday over four weeks so I took you know week one off and week four off yeah and I didn't feel like I switched off appropriately and I'll never yeah, do that again. Yeah. And we, we've been, not not forcing, that's the wrong word, but we've certainly been actively encouraging people to take breaks because you kind of just roll one day to the next. And there's a brilliant phrase we're using with people at work just now who are working from home is, is you kind of feel you're living at work and we need to break that yeah. cycle. You know, you you know you shouldn't feel like that. And if you've not got a, a separate space or a somewhere where you can just psychologically switch off from it, I think it, it just blurs into one right and it becomes a blurs day rather than a work day and a home day it must be very easy to overlook it particularly at the moment when maybe people are feeling like well i should be grateful that i've got a job and stuff and um people need to recognize obviously that recovery is important if performance is important in your job and your role then recovery is just as important and even that can be hard sometimes to convince athletes that recovery is important Never mind people who are in a work environment and they just feel this kind of ongoing pressure. Yeah, and you see it with athletes a lot, right? A lot of them, recovery comes through pushing themselves to the point of injury, whereas in force rest, and they almost get that kind of recovery halo effect as a result. And the, the yeah. real trick is, the real trick is recovering before you truly need to, right? Because you never step over that red line. 
and I think from an athlete point of view, it's almost easier to see and feel it coming because this kind of physiological indicator starts to come out. You know, my ankle's sore, I'm feeling a bit tired. I think in work... Yeah, some it's a people, bit more immediate, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. Whereas in, I think in the work context, I think some people it just... It creeps up on them, and before you know it, it's, I mean, not being overdramatic here, but you can be work-related stress or, you know, you've got anxiety that you can't quite place where it's coming from, and it's because you've not given yourself space to recover and think between between meetings or between activities. So it's, it's just as important in life as it is in, in athlete life. Yeah, I read something recently, Ariana Huffington uh, had written about the importance of people taking holidays, even in lockdown situations, and... Um, when you don't do it and the business doesn't support that or encourage it then they end up both parties paying a price for it you know because innovation creativity resilience all those things are down and team building and um, when people get kind of burnt out and depleted and that kind of low level stress that you're talking about um, and I think probably most of us have experienced that at some point even just outside of lockdown you know back in previous roles and previous times when you're office based and you're picking up emails after work hours and all that as well it all becomes um uh quite pervasive in the end i think yeah yeah it was i don't know if we mentioned in the last pod but that whole thing where you spend three quarters of your waking hours you know ingesting information taking information in yeah. so where is that going you know it's like the you yeah. know sherlock holmes who it's been noted i've mentioned before describes a mind as being like an attic <laughs> And, and I love this concept where he says the mind's like an attic and if you stock it with every bit of lumber that comes your way, you'll end up not being able to find anything. And I, I think there's some merit in that concept. You need to order your mind, which means you need to give it time to think about what you want in there. So if you're just yeah. ingesting information all the time, all you're doing is overloading yourself. Sherlock Holmes has clearly visited my attic, James. <laughs> no comment, no comment. <laughs> you cannot find a thing in there. I'm like, I'll deal with it some other time. Brilliant. Okay, um, so last week we talked a bit about self-awareness and how important it is, especially when we've got goals that we're working towards or, or trying to make improvements and finding smarter ways to train and work. And I think we both agreed that the thinking is sound and we both acknowledge that conceptually it's it's maybe pretty obvious, but in reality it's, it's a lot more challenging to be practical about it. What is it that you can really do to be more aware of your own thinking and behaviours and what can you really do with that information and understanding when you have it? I don't think we really got into some of the nuts and bolts of that and I'd like to try to get there today if we can. And maybe that's just our overall goal for this episode to break down what's really involved in self-awareness, talk about inherent biases that we all carry and suggest some ways for people to use this new level of self-awareness or understanding to be a better athlete partner performer or whatever else it is that you might be working on so there's obviously been a great deal written about this in the last few years i think outside of these conversations james we've probably both picked up books over the last few years that kind of talk about some of this at length and um, we've probably all heard the term about bias in in different ways and we'll come on to some of that shortly and most of us will know some good examples of it. Some of them are quite obvious and unpleasant and unacceptable, things like racism and sexism and stuff. Uh, but it isn't all, always bad either, I don't, I don't think. But you'll certainly be, um, you can be surprised at what lies deeper in you than you maybe realise. And I heard this great example a few years ago on a TED Talk video. I think she was an author or she was certainly a researcher on the subject. And she told a story that goes like this. So it was a dad and son were out one day in a car. I don't know if you've heard this, James. They had a terrible accident. They swerved off the road and the car was completely mangled. The dad died at the scene and the boy was rushed to the hospital where there was a surgical team waiting in the operating theatre to try and save this boy's life. So the boy's wheeled in, critical condition, and the surgeon on seeing the patient said, I cannot operate. And the team asked why, and the surgeon said, I can't operate because this is my son, right? So there's a pause in this story here maybe just to give you some thinking time and I probably did the same thing as most other people right I was a bit confused I was thinking did I not hear this straight did I miss something at the start of the story could this have been his stepdad or maybe it was a gay couple and we kind of quickly scramble around looking for an obvious answer to this riddle and then you're told that the surgeon was in fact his mother now I know as well as anybody that women can be surgeons I'm not daft but I guess there's some kind of bias installed in me that when I think of a surgeon I think of a man so what's your view on this James overall and what kind of things do you think we should be looking out for and how can we maybe how could I 
or other people maybe wipe clean some of those that have been rein reinforced all the time by other people by the media we consume and by these kind of long-standing narratives i mean that that story is um it's it's a, a kind of a famous one but even as you were telling it i'd forgotten it and it was only when you yeah. you can it's almost like the punchline or the payoff or the the moment of thought um and you're like oh so it is because even at that I, I, even when you're telling a story i'm visualizing a hospital room where a male surgeon coming in right because that's what you visualize that's what you see that's what you're kind of uh -huh. you're kind of brought up with and 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 it's interesting because i think you ask the question how can you wipe the slate clean and i'm not sure you ever can um i was listening to a, a podcast this morning and um I'll, I'll send you the link so you can put it in the show notes it was called eat sleep work repeat um and it's mm -hmm. about how to kick the bias out your work life right and People talk about it. the 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 um the guests are brilliant. It's um they're two two basically two black women. They're both American, right? So they've they've been the victims of all that unconscious bias and all of that, and even some of the prejudice and all the bullying and stuff that goes along with it. Um and um when you're sitting listening to them, um Kim Scott has written this book about it, just work, and you sit and listen to it and you think, this is this is this is going to be so so hard. And I think the first thing is is just be prepared to be wrong and to have your biases challenged so they talk about you know when and, and i'll tell you a story about the book uh, the book she wrote right because it tells its own story but even someone who's really trying to get rid of this bias from the world is is so inherent within her but they they, they talk about just having flags and, and li quite literally they go i'm just going to put a bias flag up here because what you've said there actually that that you know that's got some implications for those that suffer from the bias there so she uses the example, 320-page book, and she had um, a blind editor <clears throat> um, editing it for her. And so she tried really hard to make sure there was no language like, and I seen it this way, or I see it that way, or I saw, you know, as in, because it's not about what you see with your eyes, but it's about what you understand. So she was trying hard to move, to move the narrative to using the word, I noticed, or I notice. And mm -hmm. even, even consciously trying that, she had 99 examples of sight bias in her book. And that's an example where you wouldn't even think about it. You know, you yeah. use that language all the time. Oh, I see what you mean. And you just move on from that. And it's that's not one that we would think is really difficult for someone, but actually for for someone who might be, you know, visually impaired, that can be quite difficult. So the first thing was just be open to being wrong or open be open to the fact that there's new and emerging thought in the world. You've got the classic stuff, Paul, you know, where you speak to someone who's of the older generation and in inverted commas and they might use a what would now be classed as a derogatory term for the corner shop or the, the, the Chinese takeaway. Yeah. And they go, ah, oh, that's just the way I am. And, and it's like, well, yeah, but you know, you can change who you are. So let's have a conversation about why that's not appropriate. And I think they use the phrase, Paul, um, for people like what we reach out to be is to be upstanders. So when you see someone sharing stuff that can harm others with a bias in it, is is even if that person's not around. So say someone shares a meme to you of the example they use is Oprah Winfrey. Chances are Oprah Winfrey's not going to see that meme going from that person to you. But by you calling out that being inappropriate, you become an upstander for, for trying to do the right stuff. And I think that's that's the first step. And then the big thing they talk about is, is listen, there's probably no end game on being unbiased. It's a journey because we're always learning new things. So what was regarded as biased 10 years ago, um, not biased 10 years ago, is now as we learn and we reappropriate the language and we reappropriate our understanding. So I think it's just be open to being on a journey and be open to be wrong and see when you're getting it wrong. Celebrate the learning rather than, um, you know, be angry about the um, being called out or being angry about being ignorant. I think I think that was that would be my advice on it. Yeah, I always struggle with that argument, James, that... Um you know, particularly around older people that say, well, that's just the way they are, that's just their age, it's just their generation. It's like, I, I can get it. If you're totally unaware of a bias, then you can understand why it continues. But if somebody raises it to them and says, listen, that's not the right way to talk about that particular thing anymore. Um, you've been given that awareness and really you should be making the choice to do something about it rather than just making an excuse to say, well, that's the way it's always been and that's what we used to say when we were 15 years old and it was, you know, 60 years ago. Um, so yeah, it's always a funny one. Well, at that point, it's no longer bias, right? It's prejudice, and and, yeah. and I guess and I guess that's the thing because you're consciously, you're making the choice to put someone else or something else or 
some other person or, or protected characteristic or underrepresented group, whatever it might be, you're making the choice to demean or trivialize or disempower them by the language you use. So, mm. um, and, and I think that that's okay. If, if bias, and you hear the word unconscious bias a lot, but if you, if you take biases to be just education that hasn't happened yet, then I think it's okay. But when education happens, like you say, you can't say that, you know, Uncle Roy or whatever, um, and Uncle Roy continues <laughs> to still use that language, then Uncle Roy's been prejudiced. Yeah, have Sorry, you got Roy. a real Uncle Roy? I, I don't. Given my dad's got seven brothers and eight sisters, I'm surprised I don't, but no, no, I don't. Uh, Not that I'm aware right. of. Okay. okay. <laughs> Uncle Roy from um, Croy, Paul. Uncle Roy from Croy. <laughs> Roy from Croy, very good. <laughs> um, so obviously, um, bias then can take a number of forms, um, and one of the most prevalent these days that I find um, and I'm actually loath to use the term, right, because I'm maybe doing exactly what it refers to, but I'll use it anyway with a caveat to state that I am by no means an expert on any of this. I just see it, and I see it particularly on social media. I'm interested in it and at times frustrated by it, so I've actively gone out to find out more about it. I'm not claiming to be any kind of, of expert. And that bias is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. So I believe it was based on a study from Cornell. Uh, and in short, if I'm getting this right, it happens when someone's lack of knowledge and skills in a particular area causes them to overestimate their own competence. So they think they've become experts in any given topic, mostly because they lack sufficient knowledge to even realise that they actually don't know very much at all. It's the kind of stuff I think we see on social media all the time. Twitter and YouTube are awash with it, as far as I can see. And that's with people who present opinions, views, recommendations, perhaps without enough knowledge and experience to really back it up. And their expertise probably lies more in their ability to present and promote a YouTube channel rather than it being an expert in running or music production or cryptocurrencies or whatever expertise they position themselves as and then it also has another side to it I think and it's something that we're maybe all guilty of um, is when we might be very good at something we have some really clear focused skills in a particular area that we think everybody doing the same thing or trying to carry out a particular task should find it as easy and as simple as we do um, and it, clearly that kind of stuff isn't great if you're trying to help people learn stuff I think we've probably all done it in our personal lives and we've maybe said to a friend or a partner oh either way I'll do it it's not that difficult um, and, and when we do that as well as it being frustrating for the person who maybe wants to learn something we're actually underestimating our own relative abilities and I probably do it myself sometimes even with the coaching at times, I'm like, well, it's just pulling together some training plans without really acknowledging everything that's gone into building that knowledge and experience and understanding of getting the best out of people. So how do you how do you feel about this particular kind of bias? Um, where do you maybe see it most in general and in your athletes maybe? And is there anything you think we can actually do about it? Um, again, I, get, I guess it's back to the point is if you're willing to talk about it and surface it through good candid feedback then you yeah. you can you can start to tackle it and i think there's a couple of good examples right where when you when you bring that to life right and we talk about coaching so let's let's talk about where this showed up really really badly um um and coaching and it was when glenn hoddle if, if you remember glenn hoddle you know pretty mm -hmm. famous and accomplished footballer you know one of yeah. the most technically gifted um footballers of his generation in england um he was manager of Chelsea and he was, you know, doing training drills um, and he had the players, you know, they were doing these drills and the players just couldn't get it. So this guy's their manager, right? So he's got hierarchical um, authority and power over them, right? And in football, that matters. Yep. As you know, you've got yep. the dressing room, the captain say, you've got all your cliques and all that. He yep. goes in and goes, oh, look, let me show you how to do it. He goes in first time, does a drill perfectly and then just moves off. And he thinks he's been a great coach because he's demonstrated because he's got the ability to his people how easy yeah. it is. Whilst at the same time, he actually undermined everybody in one fell swoop. Lost, he basically yeah. lost the group with that, not realizing that his superiority actually was an intimidatory factor. So that's the the inverse of you know that um, almost yeah, yeah. Un unconscious yeah. incompetence. Um, so there's a bit about actually recognizing, you know, that whole bit about self-awareness comes into that and going, you know what, the, the, the least appropriate thing here for me to do would be going and show them. I think Maradona is another great example of how great people, great players, 
um, don't become great coaches. And you could say the same from from a running point of view, but um, that would be not not maybe not where we want to end up right now. But that that happens. But the reverse of it's true as well. You get the people who go in and think no matter what, and you see it being hammed up in movies quite a lot. You know the completely incompetent person get in and just being total ramshackle and wrecking the camp and um tim harford done a, a podcast on dunning kruger like a few months ago and he tells mm-hmm. a story about a boy who went to rob a bank and somebody said to him if you put lemon juice in your face the video cameras can't <laughs> pick you up so this this guy done this this guy done this because he believed it and you know he tells a story about how the first time he put lemon just in his face, he went to look at himself in the mirror and he couldn't see himself. So he assumed it worked. Um, but what had really happened was that it got into his eyes, so his eyes were burning. <laughs> so yeah, he couldn't see him. But he was, it, because, it's because of that thinking, he was so convinced he was right that all the evidence telling him he was wrong, like common sense, just got thrown out the window, right? Um, and yeah. to the point where he got lifted, <laughs> the point where he got lifted, he's like, to the police but i had lemon just in my face how did you recognize me and they were like what, what are you talking about so i mean there's, those are two opposite ends of the scale and i think what you've got to do is, is to just try and tackle where people are at on that work out where their incompetence comes from so it could be the person who thinks you know the athlete who says i'm going to go and run a 30 minute 10k tomorrow when i've never run more than 20 minutes for a 5k you kind of just have to lay out the logic and the facts and try and convince them but the the worst thing you can do, I think, in my experience with people who've maybe got that level of, um, or that lack of self-awareness, is just go feet first and tell them they're wrong. You have to demonstrate and let them find out for themselves, but you nudge them towards the right information. Like, you sure you can do 30 minutes? Because you did 5K time trial last week, it was 20. If we double 20 over 10K, that's 40. What do you think about that? You know, and you, you, I think that it's almost like through education and help and support, but we all suffer from some version of Dunning-Kruger on some scale, right? I think you do, I do, anyone listening to this does. And actually, the big thing is getting someone else who can help you see your blind spots to spot them. And again, being open to being kind of told you might you might not be right or taking that new information on and reevaluating your position. Yeah, I just think it's going to be a bigger and bigger issue now. And we've seen that across. If you t- take social media alone, some of the ideas that are um, born on social media and then spread... And people believe, you know, the flat earther types and everything else as well. And actually, I looked into some of the figures in some of those studies and it suggested that those who are the most ignorant, so they're in the, say, say for example, they're in the bottom 25% of any skill, they also overestimate themselves the most. Yep. So in, in this age and living in this democracy, I guess, that we live in at the moment, it, it probably means that our most uninformed people are the most confident ones and I, I, I worry about what that means for the future really. Well that that's true however there is also um, there's also at the other end of the scale um, the same thing happens um, so there's a, a, cu- a couple of bits a, a around this is, is um, there was a study done I think it was about the second year of Trump's pres- presidency and he's he's regarded as a quintessential example of Dunning-Kruger right um and, yeah. you know, if you if you Google it and just read about it, it'll fascinate you for days on end. So they got climate scientists who believed that global warming was real, and they got climate scientists who believed that global warming was um, a hoax, a fake, or whatever. It wasn't as bad as people were making out. <clears throat> and what what they found was the more information they gave those scientists, the more they actually um, gravitated towards their bias. But if you gave people who were in the middle who were a bit unsure about it. Um, and you can split this Republican and Dems, right? Because it quite literally split down party lines because, because it almost became a team thing. Um, the people in the middle were more inclined to have a, a conversation and change their, their, their views and their minds and actually take that information on. But actually, people who are highly educated in a subject can become even more, um, you know, even more biased about that particular subject because they're almost basically cheering their own education on. To, to admit otherwise yeah. would be thrown out years, yeah. years of learning. And I had the same thing, um, this is on a much smaller scale, right, obviously, but when I was at uni many years ago, one of my favourite bands was Rage Against the Machine, and I was doing this, um, I was doing an article about Rage Against the Machine, and I went in to start writing an article, and the whole point was going to be how Rage Against the Machine shook up the music industry because they didn't play ball, and they, you know, they, they were like, they were the rebels within the machine, you know, ra- raging from within machine, from within the machine, that was my, that was what I was going with. And then about, two studies into what I was looking at, 
they've got a website with Sony, they've got a, a deal with Sony, you can buy merchandise on their website, you can buy stuff mm. that's, you know, probably handmade in, you know, some Eastern country being sold in America for $50 a pop, and it was like, there was such a contradiction that actually left me really flat on my thinking about the band, even though I still love mm. them and I still love what they go on about. That, that to my mind, was like, it was a big wake-up call in my thinking, because my bias was, these are the rebels, and then actually these rebels sell the records through Sony, and you can buy t-shirts at 40 $50 a pop from their website. Didn't feel right to me. Um, so, the, the, you know, so I, I think the point there, though, is is you, sometimes you feel people who are actually demonstrating one thing, I'm highly educated and, and I'm willing to be open, actually give them information that just reaffirms their biases. So it can happen on both sides of the scale, I guess, Paul. I think that's an interesting point you've you've come on to there about the whole Rage Against the Machine thing and that kind of corporate side of it, which felt uncomfortable to you. And it, it maybe, maybe that kind of suggests a bit of cognitive dissonance, which is the next term that I wanted to try and maybe get to. Um, and it's maybe a pretty good example, really. But it's certainly something that I've heard a lot more spoken about in the last 12 months, I think. And, and it's when you're maybe faced with two conflicting beliefs or values like you thought this was a band that was standing for something and then by the other token they were they were corporate they were making money off the back of it and exploiting people in some ways whether you call that exploitation or not it's up to you i guess um, and it's really that unpleasant conflict between those two different sides and um, that kind of breaks your mental harmony if you like and your your actions don't maybe reflect your beliefs so another example of this might be um, with so many people working from home at the moment, you know you're supposed to work nine to five as you would do in the office, but you know you're entitled and you're right to take some breaks during the day. These breaks might end up being fairly chunky in the end. You know that there's more there than, or you're maybe taking more than you should be. You maybe squeeze in a few episodes of a Netflix series and you tell yourself that it only makes you more productive anyway. It's good thinking time for me and it will make me be more creative. And when I work anyway, I work really hard. I work harder than other people, so it's okay to do that anyway. And there's there's something conflicting about that. And, and I think that kind of captures some of this term around cognitive dissonance. Um, not dissimilar, probably in some ways, to people who maybe choose to smoke cigarettes they're well aware of the impact on their health and their risk of dying and reduced life expectancy but they say they need to smoke because it reduces their stress levels or it's some kind of relief for them or whatever it's like animal lovers is another one maybe who eat meat and tell themselves that it's okay that those animals suffered and died to end up in a sandwich but my dog should be treated better than maybe half the world's human population, um, but I would never wear products tested on animals. So there's some obvious conflicts going on there. Um, and I guess it's not always negative either. I guess you could call things like people forcing themselves to go to the gym as, as having some kind of cognitive distance in that they really don't enjoy doing it. They don't enjoy going to the gym. They don't enjoy it when it's there, but they know it's going to make them healthier and ultimately it's going to make them happier. So they go and do it as well. So it's not always negative, I don't think. I think possibly the main problem though with that sometimes is going back to this whole self-awareness conversation. We don't necessarily have the tools to recognise what's going on. I think we certainly feel the stresses of the dissonance um, when we're making these daily decisions about Maybe it's about diet or something. It's a common one. You know you know what's healthy for you. Or as an athlete, you know, you maybe shouldn't be eating pizza at 10 o'clock at night, but you can find a way to do that. And, and you can feel there's something not right there, but we maybe don't have the tools to step back and say, well, there are two things in conflict here and what am I going to do about it? So have you got any suggestions about how people do that? Because we, we see it a lot with athletes, don't we? We, we see it a lot with... Um, get yourself to bed early make sure you're getting enough rest so that you can go out and train well in the morning because you're up early in the morning you're going to do a workout session and it doesn't always happen and and athletes face those kind of conflicts all the time i guess yeah. is there anything you think about yourself personally as an athlete or anything that you can see that maybe works well with some of the people that you coach i, I think the the big thing that works well because we, we all if you everyone listening to this just now and if we were to take a second to think about it we all play in the cognitive dissonance space it's that example you gave there paul is i think the diet one's the easiest one to get people into because it's almost yeah. like 
oh, you know what? I'll start a diet on Monday or I'll have this. Yeah, yeah. I'll have this thing that's not right for me just now, but I'm going to justify it because it's been a stressful day or I'm entitled uh-huh. to treat. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. you know, we I mean, we, we both know Rena McGregor really well and she, she abhors the, um, the um, kind of language where someone associates exercise with food because it's an unhealthy relationship. It's almost like I only exercise so I can eat this cake. And yeah. it's like, that's yeah. not really the right thing because maybe when you can't do that exercise, the cake will still be there and it's an unhealthy relationship anyway because that, that reward that you're giving yourself, is that real? But actually, it's just almost like that kind of, I don't know, it's a, a kind of justification of the behaviour and you're justifying it to yourself. But if you if you could stand outside your body, you would stop it. And I think the big thing in all of this is, is I think it's okay sometimes for your belief and your actions to be slightly in contradiction of each other because I think that's part of human growth, right? I think that's where mm-hmm. you, you learn and you, 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 you actually maybe reshape your belief. So you, you may be a meat eater, for, sorry, you may be a, um, a, yeah, a meat eater who loves animals and then you go, actually, now that I'm thinking about this, I'm, I'll, I'll move towards vegetarianism or veganism, whatever. And we, we would never preach about that on here. We both, we both hold our own views. But then you might yep. actually then look at it and go, well, I'm going to actually support these charities and I'm going to be active and actually living out my beliefs through more channels and become more rounded in that. And that's okay. But I think, I think like the big thing for me in breaking the cycle of that, if, if it is a cycle or at least trying to maximize the true alignment to your beliefs is, is it's kind of about habits and rituals, right? So a good example would be is, is I know I train better when I get up in the morning, but it's just so much easier to lie in bed for five minutes or 10 minutes and then that yeah. becomes an hour. Yeah. And then you know you you lose that time, but if you can break the if you can break the cycle of that um, thinking and actually create the habit where you get up to create the habit where it becomes it becomes a morning habit, and then maybe create a, a new ritual around that. But it might be so. My ritual is is Friday morning. I don't run every Friday. Very very rarely, probably the day of the week I run least on. You know because of the way we plan it out, and I'm at an age where seven days a week's not the best thing for you. But for me, mm-hmm. I kind of look forward to a Friday morning, if only because I go to bed more relaxed because I'm not thinking about the next morning. I'm just like, yeah, I'll just I, I don't set an alarm and I just get up whenever I wake up. So it's really nice. But that's part of my habit and ritual. And I'm quite happy also to have that habit and ritual bent because I think that bend helps me reaffirm whether that's still the right habit and ritual for me. So that can be in your eating, it could be in your, your drinking, it can be in your training, it can be in how you live your life. But I think if you get good healthy habits and rituals and we talked a wee bit about habits last time round um they can make all the difference and they can break that cognitive dissonance but you know we should all be able to take a minute to recognize if our beliefs and our actions are in contradiction of each other then just think about what you really want to do either continue with the action and stop kidding yourself on with the belief or actually try and make your actions more aligned to your belief which probably can't happen overnight. It'll need be like, I'm going to eat less rubbish this week. The, the worst thing you can do is move from one extreme to another because you'll end up just bouncing back and forth between them. So I, I honestly think if, if you're trying to break the cycle of a, a belief in, a belief in a, an outcome that's not aligned, um, then just starting to reframe new habits, new rituals makes a massive difference. And getting someone to help you recognise that, like a coach or like a friend or a family member to go, you know what, I'm I'm going to call you out on this because actually you need it and actually it's to your benefit, then someone you trust can make all the difference, right? Because I don't believe you can do it all yourself. I really don't. Yeah, and that's an interesting one. That's a separate conversation maybe about um, if you can do that on your own. But I, I, I totally agree that you've got to create enough space that you can identify well, what are those conflicts there. And I don't think we're very good at doing that. I think I think we know there's something wrong and you shouldn't be doing something or it doesn't quite align to that goal you set yourself out at the start of the year or whatever. Um, but if we can be quite clear about, well, those are the conflicts and then is there something that I need to change in my behaviour or my mindset or in my beliefs um, to make that better and to make that less conflicting? And maybe, like you said as well, is is taking an assessment of that. You know, is is it really important that I resolve this conflict or dissonance? Because um, it might not be, because things change and goals change and targets change um, as you go week to week. So it might be something that you don't have to solve and you can let it go. Because we probably all hang on to stuff as well that maybe aren't serving us and we're putting pressure on ourselves sometimes when we don't have to. And that, and that, that pressure you're putting on yourself adds stress. 
you know, so that's me. I didn't. Yep. Run, that's me. I didn't run again this morning. I'm a failure. Yeah, and yeah. It, can, it can add negative negative weight to your mind. Um, but then the distance can allow you to, you know, get rid of that. When actually the real answer is, is actually, you know, deal with the issue first up, straight up, if you can. So, you know, I, I think when you when you're acting in contradiction to your beliefs, it actually has this kind of level of mental stress that I think can cause you. I don't want to be dramatic and use, but it, it can cause. Let's just talk about it from a healthy mind point of view. It can cause a performance dip there that's akin to the one we talked about about you know that whole working from home and blurring the day and living at work and all that. It can cause the same same effect, which can just take away some of the sharpness you want to have as an athlete and a human. Um, and there's, yeah. a, there's a brilliant phrase, Paul, because obviously I've got the Sherlock Holmes um, reference in, so let's go with the music one now. Them, them Crooked Vultures, which is like a band that um, Dave Grohl, um, Josh Holm and John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin had, they, they've a line in a song and it, re it resonates with me in a conversation like this, which is, ignorance is bliss until they take your bliss away. And if you're willing yeah. to allow your bliss to be taken away and maybe get somebody to help you with that, oh, it can make. It can, I think it can. It could change your perspective on everything. I think it's partly then about we've talked about it before about when you have those situations and and maybe you maybe you don't make the right decision. Maybe you have that cheat food or whatever. I don't like that term either, but some people will do it or or talk about it quite commonly. If you do that, that you don't allow that then to totally upset the habit and the goals that you have you might have made something that you would deem later on as a mistake but you can take the next best action and and not let everything go to rack and ruin which is quite common what people do so i i i think i see it a lot with some athletes particularly when they've maybe had a bad race and um, the race itself maybe didn't go to plan and like credit to them they use that to generate some motivation for the next one right so they say i want to have a call with you paul i want to talk it through i get on a call with the with them and they say oh i know what mistakes i'm making in training and what mistakes i've made uh before the race and then in the actual event itself so now i want to fix it i want to make it better i'm going to push 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 i want to be the absolute best i can be i want to run this next 100 mile race in 16 hours I know it's a big leap for me, but I'll do anything to make this happen, right? I'm going to fully commit to the plan. I know I need to get better with all the lifestyle stuff. I need to eat better. I need to sleep more. I need to stretch and do all that other stuff over and above my actual run training. And I'm going to be the absolute best version of the runner I can be when I next get on a start line for a race. And then you see the dissonance creeping in. Um, it's like, oh, I didn't quite do the long run to plan as I was feeling a wee bit tired this weekend. So I'm like, so did something happen? No, no, I'm just not getting enough sleep. Okay, is there a problem with your sleep? No, I think I just need to start getting to bed before midnight. Is there something stopping you going to bed before midnight? No, no, I just want to chill out at night or watch Netflix. the film. And, yeah, and something, something's just not aligned there. Um, and the more of those reasons you start to see, then the whole compliance falls away with a plan. And then we get back into the same situation that they're coming up to a race and they don't feel hugely prepared for it or they're not in the absolute best shape that they could be. Um, and quite a lot of athletes seem to seem to swing that way, you know, up and down. It can be waves of that sometimes. And yeah. I'm just trying to think of a of, of a of a a practical way for people to recognise when that's happening in themselves. You know, is it is it when you do it three times or is it when you start to do it more often than not that you have to take that step back and say well what's the conflicts that are going on here and and do i need to change anything do i need to change my behavior yeah i mean i, I think the first thing is is um having a coach back to the point we talked that gives them accountability right so you can help by pointing that out yeah. to them but there's something happens before the the the, the fall if you like if you know to, for want to use a better phrase or to, to when that behavior flips and there's probably a couple of things for me is is one the thought process that's going into that weakness is probably occurring part subconsciously but part consciously and i think there's a big onus on the individual because the point where you say oh, i stayed up to midnight because i was watching a box set and i just couldn't put it down well you're making yeah. a choice right you've you've made a choice a choice at that point whether you choose to recognize it as being conscious or otherwise that's your choice and therefore you you in that moment have made a choice that's in conflict with the um the the rhetoric you've kind of presented I think the second thing is is that I think it's about the proximity of the ambition and the purpose and the why. And we've talked about this quite a bit, but it always comes back to that is is 
what what gets you out of bed in the morning? So for me, the reason I love running in the mornings because I love starting my day with a run. I feel better for it and I recognise it and it's now a habit. I just do it. This morning I'm off work, but I'm still out early doors. I'm still out and up. I'm still out and back before the kids are out of bed and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's my habit. And I'm, I'm maybe do, going an hour later than I used to go, than they'll go when I'm not yeah. in work because I'm, I'm enjoying that extra sleep and that's actually really good for me and I recognise the benefit of that. So that's cool. But I've got that habit. But the proximity of goals, I think, is difficult for some people. So my my true next goal might be October if, I, if I'm lucky and races go ahead, right? Some people need something week on week, almost day on day, to form that habit and ritual. And I think when someone comes to you and says, my next 100 mile race will be better. And I think my first question would be, is, okay, but how's next week going to be better? To get you yeah. to get you there and how's the day after the week after that going to be better because it's so far off it's so easy then to go you know what i'll start doing that eating plan three months out because that's plenty enough time to lose the you know the the easter egg pounds or whatever else you put on and i, I think some people just people need different help with that right if, you, if you're wholly self-motivated and driven and you've got that kind of almost that olympian mindset where you're working on a four-year cycle you'll do everything today to help what's going to happen in 2025 if you're someone who's thinking about a race in September and you're like, I won't worry about this to July, you're already six months behind the curve, right? I think sometimes people maybe just need to help to bring the proximity of the purpose. That's maybe a good phrase, actually. The proximity of the purpose closer to the moment so that they can make good decisions when they face that cognitive dissonance land on them. Yeah, I get your point about proximity and and actually that example I gave, um, proximity in that they've finished an event that didn't go the way that they had wanted and then they have this other goal that's maybe three months apart and and they're hugely motivated having had a bad race and then they're motivated for a few weeks and then when it feels like the next event has been is quite far away and they've forgotten how they felt coming out of the race that didn't feel so good then i think you're right that in some ways that's when things start to creep in um, and things start to go to, to pieces. So, But you know, know what's interesting yeah. about that, Paul? What's interesting about that is, is a lot of times, like running a 100-mile race is a bit like a trauma, right? You know, you suffer after it, what went wrong in the race, the physical trauma, the mental trauma, because you're in, you're in pain and you've had to push through. And a lot of people do that and then go, never again, never again. Mm-hmm. But the example you've gave is people have come out of that and went, I'm doing this again, but I'll do it better. And, you know, the never again people tend to then, you know, it's used a lot with, you know, people who have kids and, you know, women will be like, that's it, I'm never going to have another kid. And then they kind of forget yeah. the pregnancy experience through the joy of the, the childhood, you know, if that's yeah. if that's your yeah. thing. Um, but you've almost got the inverse happening here that says, I'm now so determined to make sure that I perform so much better next time round, I'm going to give it my all. And then it just wanes, almost goes the opposite way. And I'm, I'm not really sure I understand why. I think it's, it merits further, further study. I know. I'm not sure why either. And I actually, I actually, it's a really good opportunity sometimes when people have a bad race, right? Because I love it when they're motivated and they come out the back of it and they're like, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to work really hard. And I know I've maybe only put in 90% when I could have put in 100. And that's great. It's it's when it happens in cycles with the same athlete sometimes, then it becomes frustrating. There's something, there's, there's definitely a dissonance between what they believe and what they want and what they what actions they're going to take on the back of it to do that? Yeah, um, yeah, and, and that's where people struggle. And, and you know, and, and obviously, this is one of this is one of the most highbrow podcasts available on your your podcast networks. People, <laughs> of course. Um, la- last time round, we we um, we quoted Socrates. So if we stay in the ancient Greek world, um, Plato um, used the phrase, and obviously, I'm pulling this from my, my work experience. But all learning has an emotional base. You know, so mm-hmm. whether it be the the trauma or the disappointment or the joy or whatever it might be, um, and he, he, basically what it means by that phrase is your motivation or your your you know your aim, your purpose, and all that's coming from some sort of emotion, a desire to either do brilliantly or to maybe de-risk something or to avoid some negative consequence, whatever it might be. And I think that's another big part of both the Dunning Kruger and the cognitive dissonance effect is. is where is your emotion in all of this? What is it that's mm-hmm. driving you to think the way you think? You know, so is it, you know, like a y- y- good example would be is if you, you only need to scan Twitter for any more than 10 seconds to see the lines that have been drawn and the sides that people take and this politician who I support can do no wrong. You know, even if they were throwing kids off the side of boats, that's mm-hmm. like, well, there's a good, mm-hmm. you'd find a reason for that cognitive dissonance, right? Whereas the other one who's handing out 
you know, free parcels, you'd be go out there, you know, you would find a reason to hate that because they're being slapdash with money or whatever it might be. And it doesn't matter what side of the political divide you're on, you will find yourself looking for reasons to back what you're emotionally drawn to. And we all do it. I know I do it. I feel myself doing it at times. And there are times when I hate myself for it. And that's a strong emotion to use. But that's what it starts from. It comes from that learning being come from an emotional base. And the example you gave, the learning I had was I was disappointed. My emotion was hurt and pain and anger. I'm going to do something about it. But how? what's causing them to lose that emotional connection might be a, a question to ask those athletes. Yeah, that's a good, a good topic for further discussion maybe. I think you're right. We definitely... Um, have a tendency to seek out views that are similar to ours as well, don't we? So we just end up having things confirmed back to us all the time and not getting a clear view on it. And we talked about some of that in the last episode, I think, too. But even if, um, you, even if you look at you and I, Paul, it's probably, it probably took us two or three years to get to the point of just working back and forward, and not because we, we didn't work really well and it was exceptional, but it, it takes to get to that level of trust where you can just go, listen, I've got something in my mind, let's talk about it. And you go, well, this isn't personal. It's not about me. It's not about you. And I think people need to accept that that's an exploration. And I think it's it's really good to get to the point where actually you go by the emotion and you go to the you go to the the problem at hand. And you know that's the same whether you're living with someone, you're living with a partner, you're working with someone, or actually it's a coach athlete relationship. What's on my mind is oh, I don't want to offend them. Actually, you're offending me by not telling me what's on your mind. You know. Um, even though I don't yeah. know, you know, so I think I think there's something about that candor that can really help if you can find someone you can be that level of honest with, where you can disagree vehemently, but agree the conversation was brilliant. Yeah, there's definitely benefit in in uh, discomfort, I guess. Even yeah. even 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 us agreeing to do this way back, it's probably a year we've been doing this now. Eh? Yep, just about um, yeah. Yeah, initially, getting over the initial uh, nerves about putting something out there, probably in the both of, of our minds were like, well, Paul's views are different from mine on a lot of things, and James's are, and I don't know how it's going to go and stuff. And actually, when you when you put yourself in those situations and you get a very different view from you, that's definitely where we have better conversations. Um, and I think even maybe in the last series, we were questioning other people, so our views were quite similar and we were trying to get the most out of the athletes that we were interviewing whereas in these type of conversations we actually i think we learn more i certainly learn more uh, than i did in the second series yeah i've put down three notes of things that i need to go and look up after this conversation so if nothing else anyone listening i'm taking that away from it cool um one other thing james i wanted to touch on if you're okay with that um i think it's quite prevalent in people and maybe in runners in particular and I think it's another form of bias, bias but you can disagree um, if you don't think it's the case. And it's called the listening gap, right? So I was aware of this expression years ago from a business and marketing kind of customer service standpoint. And in, in that sense, it was the gap between what customers expect of a brand or a product or a service and what the company itself believes is what the customer expects and values, right? And And when that's different, then we have issues sometimes. And I heard it again recently about individuals. So it might be, for example, an athlete who is engaging with us. Um, I want to do really well in my next few races. You guys look really great. I like what you're doing with the coaching side and I've spoken to other people and you do a good job and that kind of setup and expertise is exactly what I'm looking for. So let's go. I want to I be one of your athletes. Let's smash this, right? So that athlete has taken on some level of expertise to help them perform better. Um, in a kind of short and crude example. Um, so they follow the plan 90% of the time, not always. Easy runs often aren't easy pace, right? Recovery days are quite often way over distance and that's a bias that's coming from some belief that was formed many years ago before that um, and and the belief was around like and in order for me to be a successful ultra runner I have to run fast whenever I can I need to be doing long back-to-back -back runs because they're the things that will make me a proper ultra runner. Scott Jurek used to do it, so I should do it too. So there's a gap there. Um, I'll take most of the information from the person I'm paying to come to me with their expertise. Uh, but when it comes to certain beliefs, actually their expertise ends there. And I'll do the thing that I think and the thing that I believe. So I think it's an interesting one. And I'm not suggesting that you don't question your coach or training methods you absolutely should 
but more that you maybe understand and look at your own beliefs and where they come from. Things like, are 100 mile weeks the only way to ever run a fast marathon? Of course they're not. So, I don't know, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but I wondered if there were any smaller beliefs like that that you find in your running or from athletes sometimes that are that maybe need a bit of re-education and it's quite hard to change people's views on things that they've believed for a long time that you know I have to be doing massive back-to-back runs I should be doing 40 miles on a Saturday and I should be doing 35 miles on a Sunday because that's what I did when I did whatever race eight years ago and it worked and had a good race and it's quite hard to change people's views on that sometimes yeah and I think what what you then experience as a coach is sometimes you'll get someone who comes I, I think we've both had this who comes along and then actually what you what they're really looking for you to do is actually reaffirm their biases that they've already got, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. so, you know, a, a, yeah. com, a commute, um, I mean, a, a good example, let, let's mention an example. Um, Bob Turner was on the Young Hearts Run Free podcast this week. Bob gets coached by you. So this is out in the public domain. So I'm not sharing anything no one knows. And he, he, he brings you into coaching. He's got a, you know, a, a really, really big proximity of injury, you know, start, stop training, running 140 mile weeks. And um, he tells a story about how you took him on board to coach him. And he was like, right, and I, I run into work this day and I run back, you know, because that's convenient for my life and all that stuff. And it's 20 miles each way. And you're, you know, he's basically telling you how he wants his training laid out. He's just basically asking you to lay the training he's already doing out for him. And then you give yeah. him his, you've given him his first week and he had three rest days because of where he was and the cycle and all that stuff. And he's like, what the hell? But Bob was willing to listen. Right, and he, yeah. he he trusted you from the off. Now you'd earned that trust through performance and examples and stuff going on before. But we've both had the opposite, where you'll have someone say, "I do this this way, and this is what I do, and this is the things. This is how I want my training to be. Can you just put it in the training peaks for me?" And it's like, it's actually can become demotivating as a coach because you're kind of like, "What's the point?" Yeah, because absolutely. I'm shouting into yeah. the I'm shouting into the void here. I'm shouting into the void, and I see often. Sometimes I'll do this, and there'll be athletes listening to this will know exactly what I'm talking about. I'll maybe put a 40k or a 38k run in the plan and I'll run a marathon. Because it's like, it's yep. nearly, I'll just do it anyway. And not realising that actually, I'm not testing their impulse to whether they'll run the marathon or not. That's that's by the by. It gives me it gives me an idea of what their mindset's like and what they're thinking is. And then I need to think... That was a classic, James. I used to do that to you. I know. And you always smashed a 26 mile. I know, I know. And, and that, But that was me then. And then eventually I listened and I was like, no, that's the wrong thing to do. And actually, it kind of shows up I don't want to use the phrase lack of discipline, but it almost shows this kind of um, this kind of in the moment impulse that says, "Well, I'll just go to the marathon because I'll get likes and shares on social media." One of the reasons I I, I was off Strava for about three or four years, not long after we we started working together and you were coaching me, because actually I found myself worrying about what my pace would look like on Strava. I was worried about the external yeah. view of it, and it's like because you were making me run slower, you were making me do different things, but you were making me run quicker, but you were making me run slower at the same time. And actually, that, was, that wasn't great for my ego. So I think sometimes the listening gap can just come from, what's your ego telling you you want to do? Like, I want 100 mile a week because that number matters. And you go, well, start measuring it in kilometres and no one wants to do 162.1 mile uh, kilometre <laughs> a week. Nobody thinks like that. Uh, Problem is, some yeah. of them would then get, give me a 200 kilometre a week. But you get the point. Is, is yeah. I think it's just, sometimes it's just this impulse. But yeah, if, if you find yourself going, this is how I do it and how I want I brought an expert in. You know, you wouldn't bring someone in to teach how to fly a plane and go well this is how i want to fly the plane you go well listen i'm the expert because if you don't do what i tell you we'll fall at the sky and i think some people just want that they almost want that paid reassurance and affirmation and and it can be really tough for the first few weeks with those individuals but i think you've got to work your way through it otherwise you as a coach the person as an athlete are not getting the best service back and forward and it becomes a dysfunctional relationship pretty early on I think we've all done it and we've all done it in our lives. Oh, absolutely. We? We, have, we have set ideas of how things should be from something that we picked up years ago that we don't even maybe really remember and that forms your view for a long time and it becomes a belief. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting one. It's a fun one. You, but, you see it quite clearly uh, in runners, like you say, you can do small things like that and it's not like running an extra mile on your long run isn't make or break. It's not going to change ultimately um, how successful you're going to be in terms of a, a good training week or not but it's an interesting one to see if there's more to it than people are running for different reasons and by 
by sneaking over that. Well, it's ruined it now, James. Anybody, anybody <laughs> gets it, it's going to stick with it now. Grassed, grassed. Maybe that was the whole point of today's pod. See how who gets this far. <laughs> but even it happens yeah. in all walks of life. You know, you get the classic thing where you know I voted Labour because my daddy voted Labour. My mum actually said that, and it was two thousand and one election. And she voted Labour, and I was like, oh, why'd you vote Labour? She's like, my dad wouldn't forgive me if I, if I voted anyone else. He'd been dead 25 years. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm. right, mm. okay. I'm not sure he's going to be that bothered about that where he is just now, but it's almost yeah. conditioned to think like that. And that's a really overt example, but it happens covertly, and I guess full circle feeds back into all those biases that we've got about a certain pace being easy and a certain pace being fast and I, ru- I never run less than five miles what's the point in putting my trainers on and you're like well actually sometimes there's value in just doing a two or three mile run you know so think about it so yeah I think it all comes back almost back to that environmental historical educational biases just flood us and if you've got, if you're then suffering from that listening gap as you described which I'd, I'd never heard that phrase before actually um, can- I, I don't know if, you, if it's even used in that way James I just um, I'd heard it in one place um, so I don't even know if I'm saying the right thing but uh, we'll, well take listen, it, it, listen it, work, it works everyone. for the chat it works for the chat yeah because <laughs> it, it genuinely does I'd never heard of it but I can totally see how I can be guilty of that sometimes as well um, and and everything I do so um, I'm going to try harder on that as well what were you saying Paul? okay <laughs> uh, no nothing <laughs> exactly um, I, I think we'll probably wind it up there but maybe try and leave people with um, a bit of a summary of some things they could think about in order to get more out of their own self-awareness I think um, I wondered if you had two or three short snappy points James that people could have a think about this week before we come back on and, and talk more about um, some of the other areas that we've discussed well well, let's badge them under um, the, the kind of same thing we done at um, I think it was XP3 I think it was where we just gave a couple of statements be curious so question stuff um, be willing to be wrong so just question stuff and also look at where you've got it within yourself there and I, I, I guess build your community so don't just follow or listen to or engage with people who think and act and do the same as you but actually be diverse in the people that you engage with and I think it'll all be rich so be curious be willing to be wrong and be diverse in your, your you know the, the societies or the socials that you engage with Excellent, James. I like it, and I, I I don't think people have to see it necessarily. You don't when you become a bit more aware of of why you're doing things or or what's behind the decisions that you're making. I don't think it necessarily has to be big sweeping changes all the time. I think it can just be a matter of maybe changing your perspective on something, or maybe just developing a, a new pattern of thinking, which is probably some of the stuff that we'll talk about in the next episode. I think. Yeah. Okay, mate. Cool. Good chat as always, Paul. Nice to catch up with you. Yes, uh, we'll try and do. We'll try and chat again next week, James. If you're cool with that, definitely. Okay. Thanks to everyone for hanging out with us today. If you'd like to support the podcast, then all you have to do is subscribe, leave us a comment, and share it on social media, or just have some discussion with others about the topics we covered today. We believe in you and the potential that lies dormant in all of us and having these conversations is a step towards a better community and a supportive environment where we can all thrive. We'll be back soon with more in this series of the podcast where we'll talk further about the people, the places, the culture and the training behind our running lives. I'm Paul Giblin. And I'm James Stewart. And you've been listening to the Pylon Ultra Pod. Boom. <laughs> I wonder if we're going to do it. Yeah, you can Sweet. leave that out. Yeah. Before we finish, just a quick thought from me. I sometimes have to think about how I'm going to finish the podcast. I say to myself, it doesn't really matter what you say, most people will have switched off by now anyway. Or I question what it is that I have to say that's relevant and worthy of a minute of someone else's time. Maybe I'll debate it, I'll not think about it for a while and then eventually I drop the resistance and just talk about something that's either just arrived when I needed it or has somehow been following me all week. And today it was the same old process. I heard a talk from Sadhguru on manifesting what you really want. I didn't feel like much of it went in. He told a story about someone on a long journey on foot who was very clear about what he wanted When he was hot, tired and hungry, shade and food and drink presented themselves to him. And when he'd eaten too much and was feeling a little drunk from the fine wine, 
He thought to himself, what is happening here? I thought of shade and rest and I found a tree. I was hungry and food appeared. I was thirsty and drink appeared. There must be some ghosts behind us. And of course, ghosts appeared. They're going to torture me now and they did. This is awful and they're going to kill me and the man died. Yes, it's a very simplistic story, but the message is actually quite powerful. We manifest the things that we think about and we do actually have the power to manifest what we really want. If those thoughts are fearful and unpleasant, then it's usually what arrives in the end. But with some effort and by establishing the mind, you can bring everything you want into your life. I then listened to a very different podcast and it was an interview with a US hip-hop sports hustler type who ended up getting a huge contract with Nike, uh, which was his goal for a long time. He's no sports superstar, by the way, but he just loved and lived the brand. And his chat was like an up-to-date version of the story I just went through uh, of the man on the long journey on foot. He was clear in his mind what he wanted to achieve. He knew that if he remained open, then the universe would present the right opportunities at the right time for him. And despite all the things he felt were knockbacks along the way, it eventually took him where he wanted to go. So to finish this chat, I think I'm saying be careful about the thoughts you allow yourself to spend time in. Thoughts either constrict us or they expand us. Apparently, it takes three positive thoughts to counteract a single negative thought. So some kind of positive self-talk allows us more space for those positive thoughts to gain some momentum. And when that happens, we have a better chance of manifesting the things that we really want. That is all, my friends. Speak soon. Thanks for listening. 